Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. And for the next year, I'll be teaching entrepreneurship at Vinh University in Hanoi, Vietnam. Today, we'd like to welcome our guest, David Sachs, author of The Future of Analog. David, welcome. Hey, good to be here, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time. So, David, let's start off with you telling us about your professional background. Uh, it's it's kind of brief, I guess. I, I'm a writer and journalist. I've been doing it for 20 years, uh, so my whole career. And uh, I've written for all sorts of different publications, uh, The New York Times, Bloomberg Business Week, um, you know, you name it, a newspaper and magazine I've written for them. Uh, and I've also written five books. So mostly what I do is write books. And I also do, you know, keynote speaking and other things related to the books. And most of my books or all of them, I guess, in some way focus on the intersection of business and culture. And what made you become a journalist? Um, I guess, you know, the sort of curiosity that lies at the heart of it. Um, I... I was a kid that would always, you know, watch the news, read the news with my parents. They used to send Newsweek magazine and National Geographic to summer camp when I was away. Um, And so I was always fascinated in that that and enjoyed writing when I started doing it in university and and just kind of ended up uh, realizing early on when I was in university that I wanted to do it or sort of midway through and just started out as a freelance writer. That's pretty much what I've done. You know, I also started my career as a journalist. I was a sports writer, and I've written uh, like you have for different pub- publications. Uh, so I found being a journalist uh, was wonderful because you get to meet so many smart, interesting people. And clearly from your books, and in this book in particular, you can uh, meet some amazing, smart people who have uh, great vision about what is happening in society now. So why did you write this book? Well, this book, um, <clears throat> I sort of wrote it for, for two reasons. The main one was that I'd written a book a couple of years before um, called The Revenge of Animal, which came out in 2016. Um, and that <laughs> book had looked at a sort of ongoing phenomenon, which was emerging at the time. And, and that was the sort of uh, surprising return of non-digital goods and experiences and spaces uh, vinyl records, uh, film cameras, paper notebooks, for example, bookstores that had been predicted to die off because of digital technology and that were now sort of growing again. And 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 I was chronicling why that was happening um, around the world. And um, and so that book did really well. And it, it's been translated into, I don't know, eight or nine languages. I think it's actually coming out of Vietnam at some point. Um, and... Um, and, you know, I was still talking about that subject over the, the following years, and I felt there was more there. There was, there was, I hadn't said everything I wanted to say. And I'd sort of been toying with this idea of what it would look like, and, and I was thinking around this question of sort of the future, because whenever I would give a talk somewhere at a conference, for example, in Korea, um, where the book did really well, uh, you know, I would, everything would be predicated by, oh, well, we know the future is going to be digital, but what do you think about that analog guy? I say, well, hold on. Now. Why are you why are you presupposing that? You know, who who decreed that the future of everything is digital? And it just been kind of accepted as this gospel. Um, and so I was playing around with this idea, and you know, I was talking to someone about doing a podcast around it, and maybe another. There was something around the book every couple of years. I would come back to it, and then you know, it's March twenty twenty. Things happen, um, uh, and suddenly. What happens in the span of a week, basically, is that the digital future that had everyone said was coming and would be predicted all of a sudden arrived, like overnight, right? You woke up, you're inside your house, you're not really allowed to leave, but work, school, 
socializing, your friends, your, you know, Passover uh, Seder or other religious services, all your shopping, right? Groceries, clothes, books, bicycles, whatever you want to get. Um, Everything is online. Every single thing is digital that you have to or can access. And you turn on MSNBC, you look on LinkedIn, and every single pundit is saying, this is it. The this is what we predicted. The shift has arrived. There's no going back to school. There's no going back to the office. There's no going back to um, brick and mortar stores. The supermarket's dead. You know, we've been predicting this and it wasn't happening, but this is what we need. The shift has happened and, and the digital future is here. And I thought, well, hold on. Um, is this true? And over weeks, very quickly became came apparent just how insufficient that was. That at first it was like, wow, cool, look at us, we're doing Zoom. Hey, we're having a Zoom cocktail party. And then, you know, four weeks later, it's like, hey, you want to meet for a Zoom cocktail? It's like, F you, no, God, please do not ever ask me to do that again. Um, when I do a talk, <laughs> I ask, well, let's do a poll with the, with, the, with the participants here, but I do a talk and I ask people, you know, if I were to pay you $25 to attend a Zoom cocktail party, would you do it? Something, say $50. One person goes, a hundred bucks. People are like, okay, fine. Just like it, that, the memory of that is so ingrained. It's like this awful thing that we thought we would enjoy in some way and then just turned out to be horrible. And I think that for the most of those experiences that we're forced into doing digitally during that period of the pandemic in, in, in the early, you know, the middle part of 2020, um, they proved insufficient. They proved stressful and anxiety ridden and deadening which is why you know zoom meetings have kind of fallen off and people aren't giving up their peloton bikes like to go buy bicycles and and you know you really there you can count on your hand the number of places where digital schooling is kind of the 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 default right it's a very tiny percentage of people that have sort of gone to that and so what what the book was about was exploring what this forced experiment into this digital future actually revealed. What did it teach us about not just the limits of digital technology um, to build our future around, but what kind of values the analog spaces and relationships have in our lives? And, and, and how do we build a future around that and, and, and sort of balancing the best of those two? What's your definition of analog? Uh, I mean, it's very simply kind of non-digital. I think it's a it's it's the opposite of digital. Um, there are certainly um, there are certainly you know very much more specific engineering arguments around signal and and data and so forth. But uh, I think we've taken it to be this broad-based term, which is that. You know, if if the version that's on your screen is the digital, then the analog is the thing that's real. It's the thing you can touch. It's the thing you can see. It's physical. It's it's human. It's personal. Um, it happens in the world beyond your screen. That doesn't mean that you can't use digital technology as part of that, right? I went downstairs to hear my friend's office to get a slice of pizza for lunch. And, uh, you know, he had a computer there to check so, but I was still going in there and getting a slice of pizza. I wasn't ordering on my app, right? So that was an analog experience. There, you know, every bookstore has a computer. It's fun to check people out or a website or whatever. But just they're still fundamentally analog spaces. So I, I think it's it it really does stand for kind of this non-digital world where the non-digital spaces and places and relationships in our lives. Uh, you wrote and you started to talk about this uh, as we get started here. You wrote the diaspora prison. Why did you write that? We were able to function and not kill each other. What do you mean by that? Sorry, could you repeat that? I had a little, my digital uh, yeah. signal wasn't so strong. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You wrote that in a uh, diaspora uh, prison. Why did you write that? We were able to function and not kill each other um, in the book. And I think you're talking about the pandemic and, and you know, how the digital yeah. world kind of took over. Yeah, I mean, it, it was proved invaluable, right? You know, here in, in Canada, uh, in most places, at least early on, everybody was kind of confined to home, right? We had these legal stay-at-home orders. 
Um, uh, and so, you know, had we not had that technology, how would we have gotten food? How would we have gotten, you know, our kids at least somewhat educated or entertained? How would we have stayed in touch with people? The, the digital technology, our phones, our computers, the internet, all of it allowed us to survive and, you know, maintain order and somewhat cohesion in some sort of way, right? Like, I think there was this, there was this fear early on, like, oh my God, every business is going to like collapse. And it's like, oh no, turn the switch. Like, yeah, it still works. You know, here we go. Business as usual. Like now you're doing it for your sweatpants, but blah, blah, blah. I think the sort of dystopian prison part that I talk about was, you know, after a week of that, you're like, I, I need to leave this house. Right. doesn't matter how big of a house it is. doesn't matter how nice of a house it is. Like I need more. I need to meet with someone. I need to go somewhere. I need to go for a walk. I need to stretch my legs. I need like, I need to do something other than just look at this screen or my TV or my phone or another screen. Well, I think, right. How many people got divorced during that period of time uh, because they couldn't handle being locked up every single day. Uh, right. I mean, that's just what people couldn't handle it after a while. I mean, you just read about people who are yeah. not, were not used to being, seeing each other uh, 24 seven. And that was enough to mm-hmm. uh, uh, push them over the edge. But think about it, right? The, the, this promise of the digital future, um, which had been sold to us by, you know, technology companies, by Silicon Valley, by people who were sort of enthusiastic about that for really decades. I mean, we're talking going back to the 1970s, the predictions of the paperless office and, you know, virtual this and virtual that, you know, virtual school, remote video, everything. Like all of that was this sort of like, this is what we're heading for. Isn't it going to be great? And it was all predicated on the notion of you never need to leave your house. And I was like, awesome. I never need to leave my house. And then it's like, hey, you can't leave your house. And it's like, oh my God, this sucks. And then you're like, wait. What do we do to people who commit the worst possible crimes, except in certain states and Vietnam? Um, you know, we lock them up and they can't leave their house or their room, right? Like all of a sudden we were, we, we, the future we've been building was one where we were willingly adopting solitary confinement as the default setting because it was easier or cheaper um, or the technology allowed us to do it without ever thinking whether that would be something that would be better or preferable. And over the course of, you know, the year of the first year of the pandemic or stretching on, depending on where you were, you know, in places like Asia, in places like here in Canada, where restrictions stayed in place longer, kids stayed out of school longer, like you really saw those limitations and you really got a very clear contrast of what the screen gave you in that world and that that sort of promised future and what the the real world, the analog world that that was, you know, vying to replace offers by the way I, I think if it wasn't for streaming services people would have killed each other and i think the government <laughs> couldn't have kept it. i don't think the government could have locked us up for as long as they did if there weren't streaming services because people needed to be entertained all the time and were losing their minds but even um, then like we it, lo- but even then i think it's like you know for years i would be like someone's like oh you haven't seen the wire and i'm like no i haven't seen the wire I'm like, oh, when I get locked away, you know, when I get, I don't know, if I have a, like a five month period where I can't leave the house and watch the wire. I was like, okay, there you go. And like, did I watch the wire? No, I could barely watch anything. Like my, there was only so much I wanted to watch TV. Like my, I needed more. And maybe I'm just someone who's more active and social than other human beings. And I know plenty of people who just watch like nine hours of TV a day after doing, you know, nine hours of work on their screen. It's like the last thing I wanted at the end of the day was to like look at another, you know, streaming screen, right? Look at more lit up pixels. I have to tell you, I started this podcast two weeks into it because I'd never done a podcast and figured oh, yeah. now is the time to see how it worked. Everybody, and, everybody yeah. did their podcast. Yeah. And podcast, ukuleles. Yeah. So um, what, what did we learn about working remote from the pandemic, especially, and I think this will happen again, if another one comes on and what form and what form will, will things be different? Like, what did we learn from this and how it will be different? And, and there will be um, shorter periods between 
pandemic types of um, situations that we just went through. Well, that's a great way to lead off into the weekend. Thanks, Mark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, from here in my vantage in Vietnam, there's a bat coughing yeah. outside. Um, yeah. Let alone what's going on in the market down the street. Um, uh, you know, I think we're still learning about working, right? And what work means when people are not together. And I think we learned that there are there are real differences between what we think of as work and visualize as work and productivity and what is actually involved in it. Work, and, and I mean work in a sort of knowledge economy, right? So someone who owns a lumber yard or the construction workers who are currently working on my house here in Toronto doing renovation, like I know what work is. Like there are guys coming tomorrow to pour concrete into my basement and like work is a truck pulling up and like eight shirtless Ukrainian guys, um, they never wear shirts, very hot this summer, pouring concrete, you know, into 600 feet of basement and when the concrete's done and they drive away, it's done and there's a cost to it by the hours and the cost of the concrete and the cost of whatever, right? But like as a writer or a, you know, entrepreneurial business thinker or podcast host, what is work, right? It's not measured necessarily in the hours we work during some sort of hard thing of labor. And a lot of the work that people like you and I do or people do in all sorts of different places where they basically work on computers is, isn't something that's so visible and measured. And so we can't compartmentalize, uh, compartmentalize a lot of it and do it remotely. We learned that, right? We, the, the switch flipped and relatively easily in the course of like a weekend, most of the companies and organizations in the world were able to shift to working remotely with everybody working at home pretty much without a big blip, without a drop in sales, without like any economy falling apart. Like it, you had an accounting firm, you had a law firm, you, you're, you know, an advertising agency or a sound recording studio or a branding group or, a, you know, a Deloitte or a consultancy or architecture firm, you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, we can do this. Yeah, we got it. Okay, so yeah, let's do the meeting on Zoom. Like, da, da, da. and I, and I think that was the sort of promise of of the paperless remote office for years. Was like, we don't need these places. I'm in an office building right now that's largely empty, from what I'm seeing. Um, uh, and my speaking agency is actually in the same building, so I've, I've been in here when it was not empty. Um, and 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 so that was sort of this initial thing of like this can be done. Great, we're going to save money. It's going to save people commuting. It's going to be easier. Blah, blah. But what we're learning now, and we're talking three and a half years on from this, is that there's more to work than just the things we see. There's more to work than just the like task we're doing and the thing we're delivering. And a lot of it comes down to these unseen, non-economic. Um, non-quantifiable human interactions that is based around a couple things, right? One is this notion of embodied cognition. And this was um, uh, a gentleman who I, I spoke with for the book, whose name I'm now completely blanking on, uh, Andreas Hofbrauer. He's a researcher based in New York, and he studies, you know, individual behaviors and organizations. And he was studying architecture firms in New York, and he was he was seeing that during the pandemic, a lot of them were actually sneaking into the office to work, these architects. Um, and he was tried to pin it down, it was, and he said it was, it was this notion of embodied cognition, which is that the human body works in space, right? Like you can direct your thoughts into the computer, but we're still part of the physical world. And, um, a, and a big part of that is the way we interact with that world and the space. And a workspace, an office, a studio, whatever it is, there are things there. You see things on the walls, you know, especially in an architecture studio. There's materials, there's samples of tiles and panels and paints. Someone else has a drawing on their desk. And all those things each day that you pass on your way to the elevator or to go take a whiz or, you know, in, on the way to a meeting, they all add up to a body of knowledge that your brain just pulls in and sort of builds upon. And that's embodied cognition, the, the understanding that comes from sort of your body being somewhere. And on a computer, did in digitally, the only information you get is information that you are like purposely seeking out or is purposely sent to you, right? Unless it's sent in a text file 
file, uh, an image file, a sound file, or a video file, um, you're not going to, it doesn't, you're not just going to wander upon it. It's something that you have to find or have sent to you, right? Information is like capital I in that sense. And so you miss out on all the things that aren't in the report, that aren't in the email, right? All those other bits of info that that is knowledge and has value. Um, and the other thing we learned, I think, about working remotely is, and, and this, again, the research is starting to really come out about this, is how relational work is, right? Um, you know, you and I are colleagues, we work in an organization together, let's say we're co-professors at Wharton uh, or whatever, or we have a consulting company, like we can talk, we can speak on the phone, but the relationship is going to be stronger, the, the meeting, the feeling that this flow of information will be much stronger always if we're in person. And that's because of how humans evolved to interact and talk over hundreds of thousands of years, right? And so what, what was being lost and what they're starting to chronicle now is the value of those relationships, which is people remotely and digitally work on specific tasks. They will do the thing that they're told to do. They're working that thing, but coming up with new ideas, brainstorming, the types of thoughts and, and, and cohesion and bonding that happens when someone is sitting next to you and you see them every day and you walk down for lunch and you have those conversations, like that has a value. And it's not as easily measured as the cost of rent per square foot or the output you have of certain units or certain deliverables or whatever. That's easy to measure digitally. It's easy to sort of do that. But it's like, what is the value of Mark and David having lunch twice a week and they come up with ideas and those ideas eventually actually turn out to be the things that become the products or services that gives our business an advantage? That That is a harder and, and less tangible thing to put your finger on, but it's the essence of success, right? When you think about two different companies um, and one's successful and one's not, you know, uh, <clears throat> What is the difference between them if they're making the same products, right? It's it's those relationships. It's the ideas. It's not like a certain deliverable or process that software can just make better. Well, also, corporate culture goes out the window, right? I mean, how can you have a corporate culture if there's no corporate? Or Yeah, exactly. And, and, and a culture, culture is people, but if it's not just people atomized on their own. It's the relationships that happen when those individuals come together as a group, as a cohesive unit in the same way that happens with a classroom, in the same way that happens with, I don't know, a summer camp or, you know, a unit in the military or a team, right? Any any other group of people, it's like, but, you know, when we're all working remotely, we're, we're working as individuals. We might be in a team, but if the members of the team are just fulfilling tasks on their own, isolated, and there's no, you know, emotional, relational, social tie-in, your you're, you're bandwidth is limited. doesn't mean it can't be done. It just means that there's there's a limitation to it. But I worked for a real estate outfit out of Florida and developed an innovation center for them uh, to get people to come back in. And the one thing that you're able to tell, uh, especially young people, a lot of young people did not want to come back to the office and really enjoyed working from home. And so the mission, the what we put out there was, if you're looking to be promoted uh, or if you want to just have the same salary with just cost of living increases, it's great. You can work remotely. But yeah. if you wanted to move uh, your career forward and take on more responsibility, how's that possible if people don't work with you day to day to learn what kind of person you are and improve your skill set? How's that even possible? And we yeah, start and to see where people. Yeah. Yeah. How do you learn to, you know, you want to, you want to be a manager, you want to be an owner, you want to be like, and it has nothing to do with your particular skill set in doing selling real estate. It has everything to do with your ability to relate to other people, to inspire them, to lead, to hear from them, to be empathetic, to notice people's strengths and weaknesses and learn how to coach them and learn how to teach. That's human, that's relational, and that's almost impossible to do remotely. Uh, you know, as you wrote in the book, the American Psychiatric Association reported a majority of people felt negative health aspects. Uh, what does that tell us about the future of really working remotely and saving money on office space and support systems? Because 
I've seen like there's a major law firm in Philadelphia uh, that's reduced their footprint and now they're calling it hoteling. So nobody has an office and you come in two or three days a week and they just assign you uh, a space. Is that even, and in Philadelphia in particular, I've seen a lot of companies. Oh, I was, uh, I was in Philly. Yeah, I was in Philly um, in January and I was staying right downtown. And um, uh, it was like really, really grim, the downtown, in the sense of just you could see how much vacancy there was. Um, And DC, I was there in March and same, like really, really, you know, the federal employees, like just drastically reduced, like crickets. Um, uh, And yeah, what is the long-term consequence of this? I mean, I think... I think it's an experiment that's just ongoing because I think, you know, they're, they're firm economic reality, which is like, it costs a lot of money to build and rent and service an office. And, you know, what the market was paying is probably not worth it in certain areas if people aren't going to occupy it fully. So that's a kind of, how do you work with that? How do you deal with that space? People do like the flexibility and the flexibility is good. I think, I don't think it's people never want to come into an office again. Um, or only want to work from home for the rest of their lives. There are certain people, I think most people just want what they saw and experienced was this level of kind of freedom and flexibility with their time to say, hey, like, I'm happy to work for this thing. I want to be with people, but like, I got to pick my kid up at five every day from school. And it's much easier when I can do that. And I'm not like, 45 minutes driving there from some place that I'm sitting in where I'm not actually meeting people. So do I need to be there every single day? Like if I have a doctor's appointment, can I go to it? Do I have to like ask for that time off? If I know I'm going to be able to do the work later at home or sitting in the waiting room. And I think that degree of freedom and the kind of trust that an organization has in, in its people is a hard thing for an organization to give up. You know, the manager was able to sit there in the office and look at people. And that, that was authority that had some, that had some power to it, um, uh, but it was that notion of control that um, is the thing that people were suddenly able to get away from. It's not the sweatpants. It's not, you know, it's certainly the commuting time, I think, is a big issue, and that has more to do with, you know, urban design than anything else. But I, I think it was this notion of, of people's freedom and the freedom with their time. And, um, you know, it's, it gets into what... Um, my friend Cal Newport, the great researcher and writer, has written about, um, which is it's, it's really this outdated notion of productivity that we have to get around. And it's, you know, we're, we still think in the, in the world of the information economy, in the world of, of you know, largely services, um, we think on the same terms as someone operating a factory in, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century or you know, a shoe factory uh, near you in Japan, right? It's like, you're here, we're paying your body to be here for these eight hours, we are going to reward you this much per hour. Your pre- your physical presence thing that matters. And it, it does some of the time, it doesn't all the time. And I, I think we have to, if we can move beyond that, if we can move beyond measuring productivity in terms of minutes and hours, then we can sort of open the conversation to say, when is it important? for people to be together or what, what work is important for people to do together? What are the things that are important for people to do together? And what are the things that people don't need to be here for, right? That they can have that freedom. Um, uh, and, and I think we'll, we're seeing that, we're seeing that play out. We're seeing the research that every organization, every business is doing their own running experiment with this. And it ain't, you know, it ain't going to be figured out tomorrow. Um, in the book, you believe there are statistics that support that this full-time virtual learning isn't good for young people. There are many online classes at universities for a degree in continuing education that are strictly virtual. Although you write it got a failing grade, can it be improved where you really don't need to be in person? And also, is there a period of time like 12 weeks as opposed to 12 months where there's a definite benefit with no uh, to little downside? You're talking about higher education or education overall? I guess, you know, education overall. 
And, and, and by the okay. way, when you said about higher education, I was a trustee uh, for the state system in Pennsylvania. And back in the mid 90s, they were really worried that uh, it would destroy the system by going, uh, doing online learning, like there wouldn't be anybody on campus. And I said, well, how can you party yeah. if there's no campus to go to? You can't party virtually, essentially. So the what's Zoom your take on all that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I am, I am, uh, you know, the evidence is clear. Ask any student, ask any um, professor or teacher, ask any parent, pretty much at any school, at any level, anywhere in the world. And the vast majority will tell you that online learning was a dismal failure, horrible from an academic sense from a social sense, from a psychological sense, from a community sense. I mean, it's just, the evidence is clear, it's overwhelming, it's been chronicled by the OECD and organizations all over the world. It, it, it gets to the heart of the same thing I was saying about business, but this is true. It's like education is not about giving people facts and figures. It is, it is a bit of learning to be human through relationships. And the relationships happen because it's, of that environment and the learning happens because of those relationships. And when you strip the relationships out and you're just focused on the information, on learning on the, you know, the alphabet or math or poli-sci or engineering or whatever it is you're learning, right? Or entrepreneurship through a screen, you're, you don't have those, those relationships. Think about your young university experience. Where did you go to college? Where'd I go? Yes. Is that what you asked? Yeah, West Virginia undergrad, Penn State for my master's. Okay. Two big party so, schools. You know, when you're at, when you're, exactly. So when you're at university, you okay. think back to your memories of, of, of University of West Virginia, right? Yeah. What was the most important thing you learned in a class, Mark? Most important fact or like theory that a teacher taught you? helped you i you know the actually only thing i remember that uh, i thought was interesting uh was that uh, a professor said to me that what we do is just show people that you have the ability to learn right that's the only thing but really it's the social interaction with all my all the people and the and the professors Right, that them saying that, like if he had said that over a, a right. video, call, yeah, you probably wouldn't have remembered. Um, yeah, uh, you know, the all those things are relevant. I look at my own kids. I have a son in in um, second grade now. My daughter's fifth grade um, here. You know, public school in Toronto, and like they learn various subjects, but it's it's about learning to be a human. It's about learning to be a member of a society together as this thing. And that never really changes in education. Now there are certain things like colleges or courses that are very skill-based. You want to learn to, you know, do a specific thing. You can deliver remotely and, and, and it's effective if you're just learning to do an X or Y thing. But anything that's really about this sort of broader based journey of knowledge is, is inherently relational. And I think that's what, digital education and those who've been pushing ed tech for decades and really kind of, you know, have had a, this sort of awakening and crisis um, after uh, in the wake of the pandemic, that's what they mistook. They thought education was just learning facts and figures, but you could always give someone a book or an encyclopedia and say, here, you want to learn math? This will teach you math. You want to learn about history? Read this book. It'll teach you all about the history. But actually, that's not knowledge. That's just information. That's just facts and figures. And what we, what education is about is building knowledge. And knowledge comes from processing that information through relationships. Relationships of a teacher or professor or instructor to the students. The relationships of the students to each other. The relationships of the students and the school to the community around it. Like a college or a university in a city or even an elementary school in a neighborhood. I, I want to know. What industries do you think that the jobs work best remotely? Is there industries that really benefited uh, from this and you'll see more and more of a specific industry going remote? 
I think so. I think it's things that are very much um, uh, service and process based that don't require um, uh, a sort of human emotional element to them, right? Um, those things work fine. You know, I have my accountant, like I meet him once or twice a year, but I don't need to meet him all the time for each sort of thing. It's like, what is this tax? This is the tax bill and this, and this goes into this account. And what if we do this? Okay, great. Right. Like banking, you know, in many, in many respects, not all, but in many respects, that same sort of thing. I think many of those sorts of services um, where it's, again, it's like, it's, you're dealing with definite things. It's, it's finite. Um, but anything that involves either sort of a, uh, emotional decision or something that's physical and tactile is in an, it is, it sort of happens in based around inherently this sort of analog thing. Um, those will always remain largely analog. So like I, as I said, renovating our house here in Toronto, did a little like dug out the basement, redoing the kitchen, like, you know, you can't be like, show me eight floor samples on my phone. It's like, no, 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 drive out to this place, you know, wait, talk to someone, go look at the floor samples, da, 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 like put it in the house. Like it's so physical. Everything has to be done tactile. And, and, and I think that's true or service, customer service, for example, whereas like there is a limit to the customer service you're going to be able to get remotely or, or now automated. Um, you know, I have a friend who has a company across the street from here and he does like AI customer service chatbots. He's been doing it for a number of years. He's very successful. But like, there's a limit to what that AI chatbot can do. If you're oh, horrible, or you need help, right? Exactly. No one's horrible. like, oh yeah, that's great. No, it's awful, right? Oh, it saves money. But like, at the end of the day, what is customer service? What's customer relations? It's empathy. It's it's feeling seen, and by in doing that, you feel as though that thing you matter. Your loyalty to that brand is better. So I'll give you a perfect example. Two blocks from here is the Patagonia store in Toronto. Right. I know I have a Patagonia jacket. It had a tear in it. I took it there. They're like, yep, great. We're going to repair it. Give us your number. No problem. Like, we'll take it back. No questions asked. We have lifetime warranty. Thank you. Come walk around the store. You know, we'll call you when it's done. And then I ended up buying a pair of ski pants. Yes. Another, another outdoor brand, Fox, which is a mountain bike gear. I bought a new pair of gloves a month ago and they tore within a month. I've ridden them less than 10 times. Uh, automated customer service, dealing with an email with someone back and forth, send us a picture, send us another picture. Like they're not like, just take it into a store and we'll replace it or put it in the mail and we'll do it. No, it's like, it's, it's again, it's like, it's all being done remotely. Everybody's working from the equivalent of a call center or maybe they're doing it all remotely from home, whatever. And, but there's no, I don't see anyone, no one hears my voice. There's no feeling of this empathy there. It's just... It's, we're all just data points, right? We're all just for players in this game. And that makes me feel less human. And when I feel less human and less valued as a human, I'm, you know, not a happy customer, right? So, yeah, I want to talk about this. E-commerce, as you write, has dominated traditional retail. And many malls in the U.S. have gone under or just hanging by a thread. Yet that isn't the case where I am now in Asia, where I visit many, many thriving malls. And I think the difference is the ease of use in the U.S. that isn't experienced throughout the world and also culturally. Many people in other countries still love walking around and shopping and that their e-commerce isn't as robust or as efficient like here in Vietnam when you order something uh, through um, Shopee. Uh, that's the name of their service, like Amazon. Uh, first of all, people don't have mailboxes in uh, Vietnam, and you have to go outside and meet the shopping guy on the street, and he's sitting there with a group of packages, uh, and it's a totally different experience than we have in the U.S. But do you ever see people coming back to malls because we've been talking about this most of this um, half hour plus about the need for socialization, but yet it seems that people don't feel like they need the mall like they used to. Okay, so you're a real estate guy, or you started as it, or at least, right? You said you worked in real estate for a I, while? No, I, I, one of my clients is in real estate, and okay. I was helping them try to get people back in. Okay, well, if, if you look at the issue of malls in the United States, primarily, uh, or around North America that are, that are dying, some malls are doing fantastically well, and other malls are doing terrible, 
my brother worked in real estate private equity. He actually dealt with a lot of this for a couple of years. Um, uh, it's not fundamental issue of online versus in-store. If you go to certain malls, if you go to certain neighborhoods of certain cities like uh, Passaic in, um, in, in South Philly, just south of the market there, right? Um, yes. Yeah. These cool hip areas or whatever, like there are cool stores. There are neighborhoods where people are bustling and walking where I live, Ossington Street in Toronto, um, you know, filled with stores and boutiques that are that are jammed and people are shopping and spending money and going because it's a thing we do. We love to socialize. We love to shop. When you go travel somewhere, you walk around, you check out the shops, you do these things. The mall problem in the United States is not um, is not an issue of e-commerce took away the mall. It's an issue of urban design, of building these shopping centers far, far away from population centers and then trying to build a population center around them. And then, you know, Walmart opened down the street and it opened just a lower cost version of that in the way that it hollowed out the main street. But like the thing that was, so it just became a place to go to get stuff and not this sort of social thing. And I think that has more to do with the sort of economics of real estate than, than e-commerce, right? E-commerce still is only, I don't know, 10, 12% of commerce when you're talking about shopping, whether it's clothing or, you know, computers or other sort of goods. You know, you go to an Apple store anywhere in the world, it's jammed with people, even though you can get every single one of these products online for cheaper, right? Why is that? Because people still have senses. They still like to feel and touch and taste. They still like that social feeling of going in and talking to someone in the store and the person flirts with them and talks to them and they have an experience. It's still why bookstores and independent bookstores have not only survived, you know, big box stores and Amazon, but are actually growing and have been growing for more than a decade. Because even though a book is the same anywhere um, uh, and even online, like there is something about going to a bookstore and smelling and seeing and feeling and talking to people and being in that environment that makes you want to shop and makes you interested in it. And then again, you know, there are other things where it's like, there are practicalities to it, right? You know, yes, you can get any food delivered and any grocery delivered, but like you gotta smell the melons, right? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta see, you gotta try the clothes on, right? You can buy, you know, people buy like 10 dresses and return one or return all but right. one. It's like, yeah. yeah, or you could have just gone to the store and tried those things on. Right? I hate trying on clothes, but it's a very practical thing to do. You gotta try on shoes. Right. You know, it's like I would never buy a pair of ski boots online. Yeah, because you have to try it on. Yeah, because it has to fit my very physical foot. And like, yeah. oh, yeah, take a photo of your foot, upload it, blah, 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 blah. My brother, God bless his soul, like he, he keeps trying to buy couches online. And then when he get there, they're not as good as the marketing says it was. And then he returns it. It's like, it's really hard to return a couch. Yeah. So we offer a hundred day guarantee. It's like, great. But like, it's, you know, it's like, Dan, just go to a store and sit on a bunch of couches. Oh, I don't have the time. Okay, but, but you're spending a lot of time doing that, right? It's like your, your ass has to sit in the seat to know whether it's comfortable or not. No question about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have very harsh words for Amazon, yet many of us love the variety and quick and inexpensive service. How should we look at Amazon and will they someday be overtaken? You know, Amazon is like any large, incredibly successful conglomerate, right? Um, it, it succeeded because it gives people what they want. It gives customers what they want. I think we just, we don't really think about the cost. And the cost is that, you know, in becoming this great monopoly, it's, it's, it's done a lot to hurt, you know, Main Street retail. But not only that, I mean, other vendors, they're 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 very unscrupulous in their conduct with others, um, sometimes unnecessarily. So you know, there's a product that's doing well, and they'll see that, and they'll just copy that product and sell it for you know three cents less. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's it's supposed to be about you know the e-commerce is about this even playing field, and it's turning into this incredible concentration of wealth in these sort of few companies, places like Amazon. Um, and so I think it's just reconciling. I think a big part of that, you know, we saw that during the pandemic was like when there was the threat that your local neighborhood stores would all be closed and replaced by e-commerce. 
you know, it's one thing to sort of talk about that as a future. It's another thing to sort of behold that and, and, and contemplate that actually happening. Um, and realizing as you do in some of these dead malls or these dead neighborhoods in certain areas of the world, that that sucks. Like nobody wants to live in that place. It's not, it's not nice to drive down the main street of a town where every single thing, every single store is boarded up. That's not a nice place to live. And you're like, oh, but I got my, I got my sneakers for, you know, $5 less. I, like you, uh, still shop at stores just to support them in my neighborhood because I don't want to see them. And it's very convenient to have those stores around. So I think it's part of what we need to do. What does it take for retailers to get people back in the stores and compete against Amazon? Well, I think it's offering the things that Amazon can't, right? And that is, you know, an immediacy of availability, right? I want... You know, I need uh, a light bulb. You know, I can go get a light bulb at the store. I don't have to worry about shipping times or waiting or sitting around my front door. Um, and I think also, again, that idea of service, right? That idea of that non-automated, human, empathetic knowledge base where um, it's it's the type of thing that that is so much more valuable that it's worth paying for. So, you know... There's a wonderful hardware store in the small town near where my parents have a house two hours north of Toronto. It's called Hindles. You know, thoroughly analog business. They Their cash register is like cash only, right? No no cards. It's a, it's a small farming town. The store is, I don't know, you know, 300 square feet jammed with like seven Home Depots worth of stuff. They have everything there. And you're not like, you know, there's no, there's no going into the section and finding the thing. It's like, Hello, Mr. Hindle. How are you? Oh, I'm good. You know, real country guy with a plaid shirt. Uh, I'm having a problem with ground wasps. Or, you know, here's a photo of this thing that I'm trying to attach to a trailer. Or, oh, yeah, I'll do this. You know, he'll cut the chain. He'll do the thing. And then he'll write you up a bill, like $6.42 cash only. Um, that is incredible. I could get all those parts and all those things off Amazon or at a Home Depot or whatever. But what I can't get is that knowledge and that service and also like the pleasure of going into a place like that, which is just incredible. Your eye wanders, you're touching things. You're always, you're always getting something that you don't, didn't go there to get. It's just, it's fun. And I, so I think that's what it is. It's like, it's that fun. It's that discovery. It's not just shopping to buy this thing at the lowest price. It's shopping is this part of this human activity. As you write, the digital world was supposed to uh, promise us a better life, but maybe in more ways um, bad than good. We don't socialize as much as uh, meeting friends for shopping. Our kids aren't playing ball outside with their friends because they're playing video games. And everyone's worried about getting enough likes on their Facebook page to feel loved and not feel like a loser. So what's your verdict on the digital world? I mean, I, again, I don't think... I don't think there's a digital world. There's digital technology that we use for work, for entertainment, for staying in touch with people or, or some mix of all three um, in education, let's say. And then there's the world, right? Like look up from your screen right now. I'm actually looking at another screen in this room, oddly enough. Um, uh -huh. There's the world around us, it's still there. It's, you know, it's a big, beautiful, troubled world. Um, uh, and the things that give us the greatest pleasure and meaning in the world, time with loved ones, friends, family, eating, um, nature, experiences, music, culture, you know, having a great lesson, you know, going to a conference and meeting people and being really having an interesting interaction with work. Like none of those things are about technology. It's, it's the things that made the human experience what it is all along. That hasn't changed. That's not going to change no matter how good the technology is going to get. And so we need to think of digital technology as what it always been, which is, you know, tools that we've created to help us through live in this world. But the world is still center stage um, and that world is analog. As long as we're, you know, flesh and blood creatures on this spinning rock, that's what it's going to be. That's the truth. Uh, Sears was around for, oh, you know, about 125, 150 years, and they were as solid as any American company and produced 
uh, their own business catalog for over 100 years and had a, an enormous head start. Well, why do you think Sears failed? I mean, my gosh, they were a colossus. I mean, you know, point to any company that failed. Uh, I, my first book that I wrote about uh, the Jewish deli business, I remember talking to someone about uh, when the Carnegie Deli had gone out of business or another deli gone business. And they said, well, they didn't fail by making too much money. Right? Like Sears and anyone, they'll, they'll paint their, their demise on, you know, oh, digital technology. You know, Amazon came along and sort of killed their business. But I mean, there are other stores that are doing fabulous right now. Um, so why them and not Sears or Kmart or, you know, Woolworths or whatever, right? Um, I think... You know, the, 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 the ups and downs of any individual business are due to all sorts of different factors. And again, I think most of them are human, right? It comes back to that thing. And it's like, were their relationships good? Were there, were there, what happened to their culture? What was their leadership like, right? Um, it wasn't a question of did they, you know, build an e-commerce platform fast enough and better than the next person. It was probably some other factor that intangibles of business that are always about the humans behind it. Not that I'm an expert on Sears. I did buy my vacuum there before they went out of business in Canada, unlike the bankruptcy sale. And it's yeah, still I running. Just, it's still running, baby. Yeah. And they used to have really good quality products as well. Are, are there any up and coming analog companies that we should pay attention to that that's what their focus is? Well, I think like, you know, it's not... There, there are certain companies that that do a lot of analog goods. I think paper companies or publishing companies, but I, I think it's, I don't think it's analog and digital companies. I think it's, you have to look at things through the lens of their approach to business and, and the world. And so what, bless you, what, what is an analog company? Right? Thank it's, you. It's just, it's a company that I guess the majority of their operations are offline. Um, but that might be, you know, it might be a grocery chain. It might be a restaurant. It might be um, any number of of these 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 things. So I, you know, there's not are there analog conglomerates. I mean, I, who's to say? Is a car company an analog company? It's delivering a physical thing, even though it's packed with sensors. Um, you know, I, I don't know. it's a hard hard question to ask. None that I none that none that I come to mind right away. How often do you unplug from the digital world? And if so, what's your advice to others about taking time off from it? Yeah, not as often as it depends on the time of the year and what I'm going into. I'm really good in the summer. Um, you know, now this first week back to school and dealing with everything has just been like, I'm on my phone way too much. Most <laughs> of the time, just wasting away on it. Um, I think I try to do it, you know, when I'm with my kids at night. Um, I try to do it before bed and I, I tend to do it at least one day of the weekend where I turn my phone off or put it on airplane mode or leave it behind even. And I think that the thing to do is, is what, what can you replace that with, right? Replace it with nature, go for a hike, go for a swim, go paddling or surfing or biking or whatever, replace it with people and friends, um, conversations, dinner, drinks, go for a walk you know, play with your kids, play with your grandkids. Um, what are the things that, you know, pick up a book, you know, go to a movie, right? Like if, if you're not, if you're just sitting there and using your, your phone or your computer as a crutch for momentary boredom, you'll never be satisfied. You'll, you're still bored when you're flipping through social media or the news or whatever on your phone. Um, so what are the things that you're going to do that you want to think about your phone because you're enjoying so much? Uh, here's a question from the audience. Isn't it time for yeah. a digital reset, a rediscovery of what matters as a new way to educate that brings back more critical thinking and exploration of the analog world and swing the pendulum away from technology-focused life? Well, I definitely think so in education, um, and I think even in in sort of what that person's alluding to, and maybe even in a way of sort of public health. And you're seeing this, right? You're seeing that, um, you know, there has a, been a drastic increase in loneliness and social isolation. It's one of the leading causes of addiction and and mental health disorders and anxiety and early death and um, and all sorts of different factors all over the world. 
and and at the heart of it does lie sort of the the overuse or the over reliance on on you know social media and digital technology in a lot of ways. So I think yeah, like there is you know there is now talk of banning phones in schools, and ten years ago all the talk was how can we give students in schools more phones because that's really going to be the future of learning and this is how they do it and it's it going in the opposite direction as the evidence has come out and the experience has come out and so i think i think that's that's positive right there's really a lot of a lot of that sort of stuff but it's hard to do because we all feel we need these things these things are powerful there's big economic forces behind them there's money to be made from them it's not as much money to be made from like going on a walk i have to say when i was a kid in middle school um my whole educational uh, abilities got turned upside down because they decided then to take a group of us who they thought were reasonably smart and have us teach ourselves and that we would go using film and slides and everything and there would be no classroom and we were part of this grand experiment that was a, a miserable failure that some of us fell behind by a year. And so when I saw this happen with the pandemic, I related to it right away. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, um, so I, I think, yeah, I think there there is this sense of a reset. And that doesn't mean getting rid of your phones or computers, but it's just, it's again, it's this acknowledgement and and honest experimentation that these things are powerful, but it doesn't, they don't only do good. You don't just need more of them to make things better. Where do they improve your life and where do they, make it less and 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 that's true for households it's true for individuals it's true for organizations right where does being online all the time make us better and where does it not so here's How my last create that balance here's my last question to you and and this is going to be an obvious question because you probably ask this a lot now uh what's your take on ai is it a force for good or should we be nervous about it and and what impact's that going to have just like the dig, digital world's had? I think, you know, like all technology and, and you know, digital technology, you know, and, you know, the internal combustion engine, whatever, like anything has the seed of good and bad in it. You can very easily see with AI where both could happen, right? You could, you know, new drugs can be invented, but also new poison. Um, you know, so on and so forth. Oh, it'll be great to, you know, for defense, but also your enemies. Like, you know, you're seeing it, it a million different things can can occur. Um, and so I don't think of it as particularly evil or particularly good. What I find again is this narrative trap that we're like, oh well, none of this stuff matters because AI is the only thing that matters and it's the future. And this will change everything. Therefore, the only thing business or entrepreneurs or people should be talking about, thinking about, students should be learning about is AI and how to use AI. This is the future and everything else behind it is kind of irrelevant. It's like the truth is we're still humans. We still are these flesh and blood creatures. We still relate to the physical world around us. We're still a society that's based around relationships and emotions and chemistry, and that's not going to change. And so if AI can help that or enhance that, great. But if it gets in the way or it doesn't, then it doesn't have anything. And we just have to remember that the human experience is the central experience. It's the, it's the point of the show, right? We're yep. not there to just, just because something can be done, something we have to sort of serve. Do you, do you worry about that as an author? I mean, I hear lots of writers, and, and my daughter works in, uh, one of my daughters works in Hollywood. And of course, now the studios are thinking to themselves, you know what, we only have to give them the idea and it pumps it out for us and we don't have to pay writers anymore. It can all be done using AI. Right. right. And I think that's, that is, you know, it's, it's kind of begs the question, well, if something's so formulaic and it can so be so easily done by a computer that's just cutting and pasting everything that's been done in that genre and then just like, presenting an average of it like what does that say about the way you've been greenlighting shows right yeah, yeah. in hollywood it's like oh another sitcom about a family living in the suburbs with a wacky neighbor it's like it's it's just it, all that does is increase the value of original thought so with someone who tries to crap out original thoughts on paper um i said great and if it can help me do it in some way by formulating ideas or coming up with stuff that's wonderful but like is it going to replace original thought? 
no. Yeah. It just I'm it just you. makes it more valuable. I'm with you. you know, sympathy, you know, solidarity with your daughter. Dave, I hope you're going to write another book and I hope we'll have you back on. I really enjoyed reading your book Thank and you, having Mark. this discussion with you. And, and not a single person left during the entire hour. So I know God that they him. really enjoyed the conversation. I Thank hope you. all of you have a good uh, rest of your weekend. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. And um, David, we'll look forward to staying in touch and following you. Thank you very much, Mark. It was a real pleasure. Uh, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.